Excel Pro. My family was escaping all of the atrocities, militant government that were in my head in the 80s and 90s. And so that brought us to the U.S. I grew up in Washington, D.C. Law school was not my intention. I headed to undergrad with the idea of becoming a doctor. Welcome to Excel Pro Employment Law, where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Matt Crossman. Today, we're going to talk about Title VII and the evolution of workplace protections. Our guest is Nin Kine. She is the director of the Washington, D.C. Office of Human Rights, where in addition to enforcement, she works to eradicate discrimination. We talk about changes in state and federal laws, what we can learn about how the French handled discrimination cases, and what classes might be added to the list of protected classes. Excel Pro's interviews and products help you improve your day-to-day job performance and accelerate professional development. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro employment law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now for my conversation with Nin Kine. Nin, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You are the director of the Washington, D.C. Office of Human Rights. What is that and what do you do there? Sure. So I really have the honor and privilege of serving the people of the District of Columbia by leading an agency that adjudicate, educates, and prosecutes cases of discrimination. We are in charge of making determinations on complaints of discrimination that are filed based on D.C. laws and sometimes federal laws because we have a work share agreement with the EEOC and HUD, Housing and Urban Development. But I want to note here, of course, that today I'm here in my individual capacity and passion to talk about the subject matter at hand and not as a government representative. Duly noted. The subject that we're going to talk about is Title VII, which turns 60 next year. What were the goals of Title VII, and have we made any progress toward reaching them? Matt, I'm going to give you a very loyally response. It depends on how you look at it. The goals of Title VII were to really end discrimination, provide equal opportunity. And it did that based on five specific, very narrow protected traits, right? Those include race, color, national origin, religion, and sex. And by now, a lot of us are familiar with those protected classes. And so in some ways, We've made some progress, especially if we're comparing it to the state of the nation in 1964 when this law was first enacted. So since 1964, we've established the EOC, the federal agency that enforces Title VII, and we have added some new laws to protect people in the workplace, like disability with the Americans Disabilities Act, for instance. We have had courts make interpretations of the law that expand the protections under Title VII. So in some ways, we've made progress. But when you look at the numbers, you wonder if we have. And by numbers, I'm talking about the charges that are filed at the scene, for instance. So when you look at those numbers just from the late 90s to the early millennium, you'll see that on average, the race discrimination component of the protected classes is one of the top major complaints that are being alleged at the EOC 
And so race and ending segregation were the driving force behind legislation that enacted Title VII. So have we made progress? If race is still an issue, the jury's out on that. You talked about the ways some of the workplace anti-discrimination laws have evolved or expanded. Let's start at the federal level. What's happening there? So at the federal level, as I mentioned, we have since 1964 added laws like disabilities protection. We've added protections around genetic non-discrimination, genetic information non-discrimination act. We have expanded in the way that we view and read sex discrimination, for instance. But that isn't an explicit amendment to Title VII because that is by case precedent from legal opinion stemming from courts, right? So Examples of the evolution of sex discrimination includes discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity and expression, of course, that we know from the Supreme Court's Bostock decision in 2020. So that's an example of how federal laws, including Title VII, has evolved in some ways. You've looked at this at the state level, too. What have you found in your research about what states are doing? So states have been very much more progressive in their protections. As I mentioned at the top of this conversation, Title VII only covers five protected traits. As compared to, for instance, in D.C., there are 18 protected traits outside of the five. And New York is similar. States like Washington is going to be similar. Philadelphia is going to be similar in that there are a much more expansive number of protected areas under those anti-discrimination laws. You mentioned D.C., and I know that's where the biggest part of your expertise is. What is unique there about the laws that the rest of the country can learn from, either good or bad? It's always going to be a little bit of a mixed bag, but I think it's mostly good, which is that D.C. is really a trendsetter. We are always on the cutting edge when it comes to protecting civil rights or human rights as we prefer to frame it in D.C. Since our D.C. Human Rights Act was enacted in 1977, there's been additional protections in the workplace to include examples like ban the box which is criminal background. We've added protections like protecting pregnant workers. So in short, what I'm trying to say is that when I started practicing law in 2007, you were accustomed to following federal precedent and federal law and federal interpretations of laws. These days, it's sort of the other way around where federal laws are trying to catch up to the different state provisions that are much more expansive and much more protective in the scope. I want to ask you some questions now about a piece you wrote recently in American University's Journal of Gender, Social Policy, and Law. You wrote, if, as history indicates, our civil rights laws were made only to end segregation as opposed to achieving equality, and the processes assigned to enforce these laws are broken, how then can we truly expect to reduce discrimination in the workplace? That's a fantastic question. I couldn't have worded it better myself. What is the answer to that question? Well, the thought there is that the goal was sort of limited in 1977, for instance, in D.C., to have provisions that would prohibit discrimination. But now we're talking about not just prohibition of discrimination, but making a workplace equal, be inclusive. And so all of that means that we need to look at not just our laws, but our processes to see are the laws that we have in place effectively ensuring that discrimination is prohibited and that we have an inclusive environment. And so to do that, we need to look at our entire legal ecosystem that includes not just laws, but processes. Legal ecosystem. I love that phrase. And it takes me right to my next question. 
The stat that I'm going to read you makes me think, frankly, that the legal ecosystem is broken. Only 1% of employment civil rights cases reach trial. That's an astounding statistic. It is an astounding fact, but there are a number of reasons why that is the case. So when a case is first filed, it can be immediately dismissed on motion to dismiss at the early stages of what a complaint should include in terms of specificity of allegations. At the next juncture, after discovery has been conducted, then the case can again be dismissed based on summary judgment that a defendant might file. Now, between all those moments of motions to dismiss and motions for summary judgment and discovery, cases can always settle. So that's another reason why cases might resolve on its own. And oftentimes, courts have mandatory mediation or settlement conferences that will result in resolution of cases. So it's not entirely surprising that a lot of cases don't make it to trial, but it is astounding, especially for employment cases, because more of employment cases are dismissed at those junctures than their counterparts in other civil litigation type cases. One of the big challenges a plaintiff faces as well, particularly in employment law cases, is in discovery. What's going on there that HR execs and employment lawyers need to understand and frankly, can it be fixed? We can probably do an entire podcast on things that go wrong with discovery in civil litigation and particularly employment litigation. But that said, the gist of it, there's a lot of ping pong effect where one party is seeking perhaps too much information and the other party is trying to hold back as much as possible. So there's really a huge mismatch of intention in what can happen or what needs to happen in obtaining the evidence or information that is necessary to bring the case to trial. And so can that be fixed? The response is, I hope so. I think so. I am optimistic that we can fix that, particularly with amending our rules that govern so much of the ping pong effect of discovery and what I call litigation within litigation. In that piece I mentioned, you compare and contrast what happens in the U.S. happens in France, where employment discrimination cases are criminal. That's never going to happen here, and I don't mean to suggest that it would, but you do suggest some things we can learn from how the French handle such cases. We're never going to see a day when civil rights cases are going to become criminal cases, but we can learn from how they are prosecuting those cases. In the French system, they have what's called an investigative judge who has broad powers to obtain the evidence, the information that is necessary to get to the bottom of what happened here. Was there discrimination? And in our country, in our current system, it's not that way. This discovery set up so that there's limited opportunities to get the evidence. And then it becomes a contest of who has what evidence and whether that really then shows a picture of whether discrimination occurred or not. So it's really not designed to figure out what happened, but what information does each of the parties have and does that paint a picture of discrimination? I want to read another quote to you. You wrote, rather than just expanding the scope of our laws, we must make meaningful changes to the system in which the substance of the law will depend. What kind of meaningful changes do you suggest? One major thing that we can do, and it's not really that big of a lift, and that's the wonderful thing about it, is amending our rules that govern litigation. So in terms of, for instance, our federal rules of civil procedures, we can use some amendment in those rules to require the parties to immediately exchange the relevant information that's always going to be necessary in cases 
For instance, we have what's called comparative information in any sort of employment cases where you want to know was another employee outside of the protected group of the complainant or the plaintiff, were they treated differently? Were they treated in more favorable manner? And so that's kind of the basic information that ought to be exchanged, information about, for instance, employers' policies, and on the plaintiff side, information about damages. What damages did the plaintiff suffer as a result of the alleged discrimination? That type of thing should be exchanged immediately without having to have a discovery battle over whether or not a party has a right to access that kind of information. So if we can expedite the process of obtaining the evidence, the information, so that we can get that case ready for trial or for a more robust discussion about resolving the case, then these cases are going to track a little bit faster. How challenging would that be to both enact and enforce? Because I can imagine companies saying, you can't force me to tell you anything. I'm going to give you the bare minimum of information and take it or leave it. Right. And so the amending of the rules would also cover that, where the rules, if amended in this fashion, would dictate that lack of compliance would result in penalties. And so then that's more robust and has more teeth. I'm going to step back from rules and regulations and ask more of a culture question, because we are having this conversation in the middle of culture wars. This is a difficult environment in which to craft, pass, and interpret law. How have the law and culture interacted with each other as far as discrimination goes? Does the culture bring issues to light that the law then has to sort out, or do the new laws kickstart the culture wars? I think it's very intertwined. Culture can definitely influence lawmaking, but also interpretation of laws can also, as you say, kickstart cultural or political debates for sure. Speaking of culture wars and some of the different protected classes, you mentioned 18 in Washington, D.C. More get added, at least in the D.C. and the more liberal states with some frequency. Do you see a new horizon? Like what's the next protected class that we're going to argue about? Sure. Yeah, I think and I hope that there are a lot of movement to make explicit the protections I spoke about earlier that courts have construed for Title VII to include, including sexual orientation, gender identity and expression. So I'm hopeful that those will eventually be explicitly added into Title VII as it is the case with many of the local and state laws. Another one that advocates have been pushing for is what's called the Crown Act creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. And that really protects against discrimination based on hairstyle. And so we're lucky in Washington, D.C., for instance, that's one of the protected traits that already exists since 1977 under the D.C. Human Rights Act, but under Title VII, that's not covered. So there's been a push for that. And so I think that there will be ongoing efforts to try to add that to Title VII as well. Another hot one that will probably be coming down the pike is covering domestic workers. So in D.C., our laws were just amended to include domestic workers as a protected class under our anti-discrimination law starting October 1st of this year. And many other states have enacted a similar provision. So I think that's going to catch on probably also at some point have legislation in Congress that addresses coverage for domestic workers from anti-discrimination. We had a story that was in the news here recently about a worker at a library whose dress did not match their gender. And so there was a big protest. Is that a freedom of speech issue? Can an employer say you have to dress 
this particular way? I mean, outside of like a uniform requirement? So that is indeed a big issue. Now I'm talking a little bit more about First Amendment and also religious freedom and protecting those interests alongside anti-discrimination provision. But generally speaking, that is becoming a very hot button issue in our nation with respect to gender identity and expression. And of course, expression meaning how a person might express themselves through something like appearance or how they dress. And so can an employer dictate how a person dresses? It depends on what state you're in and how they have interpreted their sex discrimination and whether or not there are protections for gender identity or expression in those jurisdictions. It largely will depend, not even state by state, even it could vary between cities as well. There's going to be a lot of conversations that will come out for months to come around gender identity and how one dresses as it relates to uniforms in schools, as it relates to uniforms in workplaces, and whether schools or employers can prohibit someone from wearing clothes that best resonate with their identity. I want to pivot and ask you some more professional development related questions. My first one is about your journey. You were born in Myanmar, went to law school in Florida, and now you work in D.C. How did that happen? A lot of stumbling. My story of how we got here to the U.S., again, could be another whole episode and conversation. But in short, my family was escaping all of the, as you may know, atrocities, militant government that were in my head in the 80s and 90s. And so that brought us to the U.S. I grew up in Washington, D.C., And law school was not my intention. I headed to undergrad with the idea of becoming a doctor. So I was pursuing pre-med and biomedical engineering. But organic chemistry and I didn't get along so well. So I abandoned that. And I have always been interested in civil rights. And so I decided to pursue law school and initially wanted to do investment banking litigation as it relates to minorities and women. But brought me down this path of actually starting out with labor law in New York City and then down to various types of employment law as well as civil rights laws to include various protections in Washington, D.C. I'm going to put you on the couch a little bit. Can't be a coincidence that you wound up in the civil rights world with that kind of background. Sure. Yeah. I think that the environment that I was in in Burma had, I'm sure, a lot of profound impacts on my interest in ensuring that whether it's workplace environment or otherwise, that it's free from discrimination, that it's free from disparate treatment, and that people are treated equally based on their merits and not on any of the other characteristics that have little or nothing to do with the merits of a job. For a young lawyer listening to this who thinks that work really sounds interesting, it sounds meaningful, it sounds impactful, what advice do you have in terms of how do you work your way up into a position like that? Yeah, I would say this work is very interesting. It is cutting edge and it is rewarding. It is meaningful, but also very demanding. And it does require a lot of focus on knowing how to analyze laws and knowing how to write very well. When people ask me, what do you do for a living? And I would say, I read and write for a living because that is what you do. And it's not like what you see in law and order where you're going to court every day and making arguments. Making those arguments take months to prepare for. So you're going to be in an office in front of a computer reading and writing constantly. 
and then practicing your oral arguments because you haven't had a chance to talk that much because you've just been reading and writing and perfecting your oral arguments. Those are the skill set that will be necessary for you to be able to be successful in this field. This is going to sound like a bizarre question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. In addition to hosting a podcast about employment law, I've been a NASCAR writer for 20 something (laughs) years. Probably five drivers have admitted to me that they practiced being interviewed by answering questions into a mirror. How do you practice for a courtroom appearance? That's one of them. That is definitely one of them is to look into the mirror. It's helpful today with Zoom and all the different technologies that we have where you can actually record yourself. So probably folks today are practicing themselves by recording themselves on camera and on their phones. And it really helps to record yourself in order to listen to your diction, how you sound, whether or not you're persuasive. Do you have that human element in connecting with the judge and the parties that you're working with? Because as I tell a lot of my less experienced attorneys, that it isn't about having the right of it when you're arguing a case. It's about being able to persuade and prevail upon the fact finder and whether that's the judge or the jury. So you've got to be able to make that human connection. And practicing for that is probably more important than the substance of it. If you're hardworking, you're going to know the facts, but being able to connect and knowing where the issues are and being able to speak on that will be very critical. What has been the biggest challenge you have faced in your career and how did you overcome it or how are you overcoming it if it's ongoing? There are a lot of lawyers, particularly in D.C., for instance, where I say this is the mecca of lawyers, where there's nothing but lawyers in D.C. It's very competitive. And so my regret is an onus that I put on me, which is that I grew up at a time when I didn't have prolific use of the Internet. I probably didn't make the most informed decisions in my career search or in the way that I could have gone about advancing my career. And so that's something that I give back to the budding attorneys and new graduates is to say, make an informed decision, do as much research as possible, because that's what's going to propel you to where you want to go. Even if you don't think you know where you want to go, the more you learn, the more you experience, the more you are conscious of what you're experiencing, then the better you will be for your next stone that you want to step on. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro Employment Law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O dot com. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day-to-day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleague in any sector of the employment law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-ACCEL. Excel Pro Employment Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kalkarni, Caitlin Cole, Jared Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Anesh Bose, Jimmy Reeves, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Neil Ungerleiter, and me, Matt Crossman. Remember, we excel together. 
See you next time.